All right, so I finally saw The Matrix. <laughs> and I saw it because everyone was telling me that it was such a Dharma movie. And um, I don't know, you know, there was a lot of violence in it, so I, I don't know really quite what to say. But there was one line in it that I loved that has everything to do with what I want to talk about tonight. Those of you who have seen The Matrix repeatedly probably know what I'm talking about. But there was this great line, which is, knowing the path and walking the path are two different things. <laughs> it's really good, huh? <laughs> So, this is what I want to talk about tonight. It's obviously a huge subject, um, but what I'd like to do is just to offer some reflections on how to live our understanding, and then perhaps in question-answer time we can flesh a little bit more of this out. One of the most frustrating experiences that we have in our practice life is when we know something when we have actually learned something, when we have understood something differently than we had before, and when we're actually not able to put it into practice, when we're not able to live it. It's one of the more frustrating experiences that we have. Not being able to live what we know and experiencing that difficulty experiencing what seems to be sometimes a growing gap between what we actually really do know and have understood somewhat deeply. And that gap between knowing and actually living and putting what we know into action. It's kind of the difference between what we know and how we are living. You know? this seeming space in between. And we experience these gaps, this gap in, I'm thinking, two different ways. One way that we experience this gap is as a painful and yet inevitable phase in our practice. In other words, in our earnestness and sincerity in practice, it actually is inevitable that at some point along the line, each one of us will experience this kind of a gap. And then there's another way that we experience this gap, which is as a continual, investigative, subtle question. You know, so it's something that continues to be alive in our life, even after this initial painful phase is over. In this initial a painful and yet inevitable phase where we know something and yet we're having an impossible time living it. Really what is called for is an enormous degree of patience, an enormous degree of patience and loving kindness. You know, because we do get it on an intellectual level. And when we hear the teachings of the Buddha, and we resonate with the teachings of the Buddha, and we actually try to apply the teachings of the Buddha, it's not as if we haven't gotten it. And we do understand it on the level of the intellect. We do understand it. And this is not something to undermine, to say, oh, I just understand it mentally, and 
you know, that's, that's um, not good. It is good, it is positive to understand the ideas, the teachings themselves, the principles of practice. They really make a difference. It's necessary to um, hear the teachings and understand the teachings. It's just that it's not enough. Yeah? It's limited. It's not the whole of the path. And what's happening is that the rest of us isn't caught up. You know? So that we, we do get something. And I think it's, it's important to um, understand this and support ourselves in our understanding and recognize that we do understand something intellectually. You know? And that this is very good because it's thinking more in the light of the truth of things instead of thinking in the light of confusion or delusion or um, kind of the ways we have thought about things in the, pla- in the past. You know, an intellectual understanding is a refining of our understanding. And it's understanding some, some very important principles. And then, of course, we need to embody those principles. Our emotions need to catch up with us. Our bodies need to catch up with us so that the Dharma is actually being lived and breathed so that we are infused with the truth of things instead of just understanding it on this one level. Very commonly, what can happen in practice, especially in the first few years and, you know, first few years may mean the first 10 years, the first 20 years, you know, just be broad with this kind of using, using the language of time. But what can so easily happen is that we find really inspiring books, you know, books that um, are opening up a whole new world to us that we just never knew even existed. I remember when I was 11, I uh, took out some books in the library and one of them was a book on karma. And I felt so reassured. I mean, I, you know, who knows what's true? So I'm not, I'm not even talking about other lifetimes now or a belief system or anything like that. But when I read about uh, this, this teaching of karma, I felt so reassured. I felt like, oh, there's a wider world out there than my very seemingly tiny, tight world that I was living in. You know, like other people... Um, have other thoughts. <laughs> um, others have thought about things. There's, there was something so reassuring um, about the fact of reading about something that made so much sense to me. So we can read these books and we can listen to the teachings and they can be really inspiring and really you know, open up this whole new way of thinking and being and living to us. So this is wonderful. The offside, the only problem that comes out of reading these wonderful books, is that if we aren't practicing, what happens is that we gradually get more unhappy and more disheartened and more doubtful about our capacity to live what we're reading about and whether freedom even exists, even if, you know, Tons of people wrote a lot of books, but it's all like one collective delusion. Everybody got together and, you know, decided on this collective delusion together. You know, we start having really serious doubts about things because we're reading about something that has opened up something unbelievable and beautiful and profound to us. 
Now, really, the teachings have, have everything of, to do, of course, with with inner freedom and beautiful um, qualities of being of heart. And yet, it can turn against us as well if we don't practice embodying the teachings. Because if we don't practice, then there's a bigger and bigger gap between what we're reading and what is actually happening for us in our daily life. And this is really where practice is most meaningful is in our moment-to-moment experience, given that our moment-to-moment experience is all we have. You know, given that that's the reality of things, that this is only always what we have. You know, so there's a, a growing gap between how we are right here and now and what the experience of our life is. You know, the burdens on our heart, you know, the emotional um, atmosphere within, being so different than reading about unconditional love and ultimate freedom and things like this. When I said before that this is a painful and yet inevitable phase in practice that calls for or asks for great loving kindness and great compassion, and really a measureless affection being extended towards oneself. It also calls for um, a greater degree of understanding what this gap is about, because this gap is not actually growing. You know, it seems to be growing. It looks like it's growing. You know, it looks like a bad, bad story. But actually, if we understand correctly, it's not growing at all. It's actually easing itself, but it looks like it's growing because we're more aware. Mm. Yeah, this is really important. Yeah, we are actually more aware, so that we're seeing more clearly, and so it looks worse. You know, it looks like there's this huge gap. We are actually more aware of the gap that's always been there between who we are and how we want ourselves to be. We begin with this deepening understanding and clarity to see the difference between our ideals and our aspirations and how we are or are not living our ideals and our aspirations. So it's actually an essential, normal part of the path to see that there is this gap. It's not like it's a huge problem. It's not like it's an error. It's not that one isn't practicing correctly or with earnestness and sincerity. If we don't see the gap, maybe we're practicing not so great. You know, we, we do see a gap. And it is, as I said, an essential and normal aspect of the path. One just very small example that comes to mind is when we begin to be more aware of the ways that we speak. And when we're not so aware, we think, you know, okay, um, you know, I know that uh, I have anxiety sometimes after I've spoken, or I know that a lot of people are getting, you know, angry at me, or, or this or that. I mean, we have some hints here and there, 
<laughs> about things. Or I know that I'm not telling the truth, and then I have to, like, you know, remember what I said so I can say it to the next person and the next person. And, you know, I mean, we, we know this because our life is very complicated. But when we start to really actually be aware of the ways that we speak, we really begin to know it. We don't just know it on this kind of broad level because of the consequences. We become more aware in the here and now. We become more aware as we're actually speaking, not just the consequences that come out of speaking. But we become more aware of what is actually coming out of our mouth. And we can feel quite devastated by this. Yeah, because, oh my goodness, I didn't know it was as bad as it actually is. You have to have kind of a strong, you know, strong stomach about these things. Because it's usually what we begin to see is that things were actually worse than we thought them to be. You know, we had this idea of being kind of a nice person. And then we begin to notice what is actually happening. And we can't hold that story up anymore. We can't claim to be this or that. Yeah. It's so important when we begin to see how things really are, to see how we actually speak, to see how we actually act, to see how we actually behave, to see how we actually are in our daily life. It's so important in this particular phase of the practice when we are waking up to different aspects of being that we haven't really seen so clearly before. It's so important to be aware of identification. You know, because before we have begun to wake up and to be aware, we have identified with being a certain way. I always remember someone on a three-month retreat at the end of it You know, everyone goes around and everybody talks about what their experience is and this and that. So this one woman at the end of the three-month retreat, and I have to say she didn't look like she was having a great time through the three-month retreat. But anyway, she stood up in the end. She said, I thought I was such a nice person before this retreat, and now I think I'm a terrible person. (laughs) And the fact of it is, of course, she wasn't either nice or terrible. You know, she had been identified with being a nice person. And then devastated to find out that there were other things there that weren't all that nice, you know, which is true for all of us, not just her. So we identify with being a certain way. And then when we see something that doesn't fit with our identification, you know, then it's so tempting to identify with that. And this is what we want to try to see and veer away from, not identify with any aspect of being. Assume that within each one of us are the angels and the demons and everything in between, and that our practice is to recognize what's happening and to make room for for what's happening and to allow for a dissolving to take place. So being aware of the tendency to identify if we're in this particular phase of waking up to aspects of ourselves that we're quite unhappy about. It's not who you are. You know, just as you aren't an always you know, compassionate and kind and generous person, you also aren't 
an ungenerous and stingy and um, terrible person. I mean, that's not true for anyone. So if we can see the different aspects of being with loving kindness and compassion and patience, then we can just move through this phase in a more graceful way. It's not to say that this phase is not painful. You know, it is painful. And I don't want to say that it's not, because it is. But we can move through it with a greater degree of grace and intelligence if we recognize it as normal and don't isolate ourselves and think that we're the only ones experiencing what we're experiencing. We might also, as we practice, wake up to different arenas within that we um, find more creativity arising in. You know, we might look at our work life or we might look at our life of relationship or we might look at the ways that we express ourselves or this or that. And we might see that, you know, we've been kind of squelching something that wants to be a little bit freer. And because of fear, we haven't acted on this creativity. And so we can begin to see this kind of thing as well. We can begin to see that in certain areas we're really different than we are in other areas. You know, like in our family or our life with friends, we're one way. And then we get to work and we're like a totally different person. You know? Or at work we're kind of our best selves and we're you know, we're seen in a certain way and we are a certain way. And then our most intimate people we're just crazy with. Yeah? We can begin to see this as well. And this all has to do with living our understanding. So, other than a painful yet inevitable phase, also living our understanding is a continual investigative question. And when it turns into a continual investigative question, there's an enormous degree of joy and richness in this question. Once the strength of the pain has dropped out, this is a very wonderful and beautiful question to keep alive in one's life. Where is there a gap between what I know and how I'm living. Now, and if we answer this easily, we're not actually working with it seriously. If we just answer it in a superficial way, no gaps, you know, things are cool, you know. <laughs> we're actually not taking it up in a respectful way, a way that um, it actually warrants, because it is an enormously serious question. Where is there a gap? between what I know and how I am living. We're still left with this question as an arena of quite fruitful investigation. But it's really the difference between coarse suffering and refined suffering. In other words, as we practice with diligence throughout the years, the coarser suffering begins to genuinely ease. And then we are left with a more refined suffering and that refined suffering, we can use this question to look into where is there a gap between what I know and how I'm living? Um, I'm thinking of a very a small example for myself. 
in my life. Um, one question for me always is, what is different on retreat than in daily life? You know, what is different in daily life than on retreat? I do a, a number of self-retreats each year where I find a, a cabin out in the woods somewhere, different places, and I am on my own in this situation. So in organized retreats, as most of you know, um, you sit with a group and your food just comes like magic. <laughs> Maybe your yogi job is cutting up the vegetables, but other than that, you know, you just, your food just arrives and it's one of the joys, actually, of being on retreat. Um, on self-retreats, of course, the food doesn't just arrive. And um, so part of my retreat is always cooking in a very simple way and um, then uh, washing my dishes and cleaning up after myself. And I enjoy it. You know, when I'm in these situations on self-retreats, I enjoy um, the cooking, and I enjoy the washing the dishes and, and cleaning up after myself. And I always do it immediately after I eat. You know, every time I have a meal, I eat it, and then I immediately, you know where this is going, of course, <laughs> I immediately wash my dishes and clean up and move into the next sitting or walking period. Off retreat, I put them in the sink hoping that Michael will do them. <laughs> After a retreat recently, I, or actually it was a couple of retreats ago, I became very, very aware that I was doing this because, of course, I'd been aware for years, 25 years, you know, 30 years that I'd been doing this. But I wasn't all that motivated to change anything. You know, it seemed like <laughs> it seemed like it was not big suffering for either one of us, and it was okay. You know, it was just different. And recognizing that, hoping somebody else is going to clean up after you, it's just not a very wholesome state of mind. You know? <laughs> You know, ding, the, the insight arising. And so I, first of all, when I, when I recognized this, I thought, I'm going to tell Michael, you know, this is a great insight. And I was, on <laughs> I was on retreat when I realized this. And so I thought, when I get home, I'm going to tell Michael. And he's going to be so happy because I had this insight. <laughs> I was so thrilled about getting, you know, being able to share this insight with him. And now I'm going to do it and his life is going to be better and all this stuff. And then, of course, I got the next insight was don't, don't share it. You know, just wash the dishes. You know, just do it instead of, of dwelling and, you know, enjoying um, the thought of it, which was not actually the doing of it. It was enjoying the thought of doing it. So it's still in process. <laughs> I would say I wash more dishes than I used to, but it's an ongoing process. Practice is much more than a form. It's really a state of mind. It's really an attitude with which we approach life, which means awareness in all circumstances, under all conditions, with whatever it is that's happening from moment to moment. That's the attitude. You know, the attitude is that life is meaningful, and this moment is meaningful, and life 
really is in the living of it, not the thinking about it or the describing of it or the planning or the remembering, but really vivid and alive right here and right now. So that means everything is significant. So that mind state, you know, of hoping somebody else was going to clean up after me, it's nothing. And yet, it's significant. And it's so for all of us in our seemingly insignificant moments that don't matter all that much. They actually do matter a lot. An attitude in practice, a wise attitude in practice, is to do our best without clinging to a set of expectations or agendas about how things are supposed to be, how I am supposed to be, how you are supposed to be, how things are supposed to be, how the practice is supposed to evolve. But when we notice something such as as I just mentioned, and you can kind of fill in your own story here, then we can begin to live in a different way. We can actually begin to live our practice. And this is such an alive and joyful way of being. So to ask, what is practice in this very situation? We all find it easy to practice in certain situations. And then other situations, mindfulness is just completely uh, uh, gone. You know, it's it's not even um, an option. You know, it's it's just completely uh, out to lunch. Yeah. You know? So asking this question, what is practice in this very situation with these conditions? Not the conditions I wish I had, or that I may have in the future, or that I have had in the past, or that I should have, or that somebody else has and I want them. <laughs> You know, but what about these conditions right here and right now? How can I practice with these conditions in this activity? How can I practice with this person? How can I practice with this particular emotion or with this particular thought? And it's not as if we always need an answer. You know? And sometimes when we ask this, this question, we want some, somebody or somebody on high or you know, some, some spirit or whatever to come down and say, you should do this, you, know? <laughs> you should do that, this is what to do. But simply asking this question can move us in a wise direction. Simply asking this question reminds us that it's possible to allow awareness to permeate whatever situation that we're in. You know, that it's available to us. And that out of contact, out of awareness, wisdom does emerge. And so we will know how to practice. If we know how to practice, if we remember to practice, we find ourselves on a path. We find ourselves in the swim, on a path of awakening, on a path of wisdom and compassion, of loving kindness. If we forget to practice, if we don't know how to practice, we find ourselves flailing around. We we find ourselves pushed and pulled here and there by inner and by outer events. There's nothing inwardly that can guide us. Whereas if we remember to practice, and by practice I mean 
being here and present and awake and aware and available, you know, not lost in our thoughts, but present and awake, then we find a source of inner wisdom. You know, we truly can take counsel within ourselves. Asking the question, what is practice in this particular situation with these conditions, with this activity, with this person, with this emotion, with this thought, can illuminate. You know, just asking the question can illuminate. We can see more clearly how we can make whatever it is that's occurring into the path so that it's not other than, so that we're not spending our life wishing for a different set of conditions or a different brain or a different heart or whatever it may be, so that we are in our life as it is and willing, willing to practice instead of obeying our resistance. We can see our resistance to being aware and being interested in our habits instead of following our habits so many moments throughout the day. We can see when we're just walking somewhere and we don't really want to go towards where we're walking to, but we have to, you know, like work or meeting with somebody who's difficult for us or somebody we're a little bit afraid of or um, encountering um, grief within ourselves and, um, you know, being intimidated by it. So many moments of resistance that we can be aware of throughout the day. We can be aware of this resistance. You know, we can actually be mindful of this resistance. And then when we're mindful, things begin to open up because we're not as caught by the inner resistance. You know, in, in what I'm saying is that if you can notice that resistance is happening, then immediately practice is happening as well. You know, because we can notice that the resistance is actually blocking us from practice. Because we're caught on this idea. I can't do this, or I have to do this, or I can't stand this, or this is unbearable, or I would rather be doing something else. You know, all those stickers on the back of cars, I'd rather be golfing, or I'd rather be fishing, or, you know, none of them say I'd rather be here. But this would be a really beautiful dharma. Um, a sticker is, I'd rather be here. Yeah? And since we can only be here, yeah, maybe we'd rather be doing a million different things, but since we can only be here, can we embrace where we are? Hmm? Although practice is not a form, and the practice is to be awake and aware wherever we are and to allow the intelligence that flows naturally out of awareness to be predominant in our lives. At the same time, the form of sitting is invaluable. You know, this, this ancient form of sitting that we're engaged in in some way to another, or another is actually invaluable. It's the basis for sanity in a life it's really an oasis that we can find within complexity. It allows us to stop and be still 
and simply observe without having to act, without having to move. And this is one of its great graces. Most everybody, a lot of people anyway, experience resistance to sitting. You know, oftentimes it's seen as I have to, or I should, or it's another thing to check off during the day, brush my teeth, you know, shaved, sat, you know, went to work, you know. It's just, it's just another thing to check off. And sometimes this is a, a question for us, like why don't I sit when I know it's valuable? You know, or at least I believe the rumors that it will be valuable <laughs> at some point. You know, why don't I actually do it? Um, I would like to suggest that one not analyze this question. You know? Because resistance is resistance is resistance. And it's really something that actually can make one feel part of a long lineage of resistance yogis. Instead of thinking that you're the only one and that it's a personal problem. It actually, I can tell you, it is actually not a personal problem. You know? It is something that most beings who try to do this um, find some degree of difficulty to, or find that it's easy to sit when things are going well, um, and then not sit at other times, or find that it's easy to sit um, when things are not going well, and then all the times that things are going well, one doesn't sit. Yeah. So everybody has their different patterns around this, but most people do experience resistance at some point. Certainly, it can be less of a love and more of a discipline until it begins to really be a refuge, a really a form of kindness within. In working with the resistance that one may discover in sitting, it is important, I think, not to rely on our feelings, but to rely on wisdom instead. You know, because our feelings are saying, yes, I feel like it today. Uh, yes, I feel like it, but, you know, maybe later. Um, no, I don't really feel like it today. And we're just getting too pushed and pulled around by what is just a feeling. I think we need to rely on wisdom instead, instead knowing that it's something of value. We can find ways that help us. We can sit with others, of course, which is what we do here and is such a huge support and help. We can also sit for others. Sometimes it's hard to sit for oneself. You know, some, some of us have difficulty thinking that we're doing something that's self-centered and one feels that, that, that you can't sit for yourself. But if you understand that you actually are sitting for others as well, it can kind of shift around because it is the truth. We are always sitting for others, even when we think we're sitting for ourselves. Because we're taking the charge out of our hearts. We're taking the, the suffering component out. And so, of course, this is a benefit to others. In our sitting to not evaluate, you know, it's going well, it's going poorly. Um, I'm concentrated today, I'm all over the place today, you know, and that's supposed to mean something, like I should sit or I shouldn't sit. But on the other hand, to not plan, 
you know, to practice letting go of fantasy and worry. Because you can get into a habit in sitting where, first of all, you don't even know that you're sitting until 15 or 20 minutes have gone by. And then, you know, it can become a habit. And then one recognizes or realizes that sitting is happening. But also, it can be a habit to plan one's dinner or think about what you're going to do later or fantasize or, you know, all sorts of different things. And so to actually have the intention to let go of fantasy and planning, which doesn't mean pushing it away or thinking it shouldn't be happening, but not adding and elaborating on the thoughts that arise. You know, this is something so different than engaging in fantasy and worry to over and over again let go into the here and now. Practicing in this way, the sitting really does become a love and a refuge. And we are cultivating an inner steadiness, an inner resolve, and an inner determination. Being able to live our understanding and embody our insights emerges out of a very kind persistence, a gentleness, a diligence, a perseverance. We're really engaging when, when we sit and when we're practicing in the midst of our daily life, when we're remembering to be awake and aware, we are training our hearts and we are quieting our minds. And we begin to see the difference between having feelings and acting out of our feelings. And we begin to see the huge difference between these two. Our awareness practice has to do with being with, with relaxing, with observing, with unfolding, and with dissolving. I'd like to read you one of my favorite, favorite poems by Lao Tzu. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an iced-over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting. Sheer he is present and can welcome all things. This is what we're practicing in sitting, in stopping, in being. We are practicing allowing our mud to settle. And the mud is whatever is chaotic, you know, whatever is not clear, whatever is tormenting, whatever is suffering, whether refined or subtle. Can we allow our mud to settle? You know, our mud is everything that we have difficulty with. You know? everything that we have difficulty with. Practice allows us to stop 
and to allow for a settling so that wisdom, the right action, will arise on its own. Instead of acting out of our conditioning on impulse, instead of reacting, the practice allows us to learn about responding allowing action to arise from a place of wisdom within instead of our of obeying our impulses and our conditioning restraint is often called for you now there's this there's this really um i mean it's horrible but i'll tell you anyway it's um it's called a zen call um and what it means is when we're in the situation and this can be when we're in a really difficult situation, or it can mean just we're having really strong emotion arise, and we don't even know why it's happening. Or something happens, and we know our emotion isn't corresponding accurately to what's happening, but we still feel really terrible. It's called a zen cone, a coal, where we can't spit it up, and we can't swallow it down. We can't spit it up, so we can't get rid of it although we might try, and we actually can't swallow it down. And this is when we need to sit. You know, because it's not as if all is lost, because dissolving occurs if we can sit with it. You know, digestion occurs if we can sit with it. It actually becomes that which turns into something more free than we have known yet when we allow ourselves to sit with it. Do you have a little more energy? I have a little more to say, but I don't need to. Yeah? Okay. And you probably won't be rude and tell me no, but um, I'll just say a little bit more. Um, in our daily life, we can be so preoccupied, so easily preoccupied with what we need to get done. And that can be our, our way of going about the day and our way of going about our life. What am I getting done today? We can so easily do whatever we're doing in order to. You know? Doing one thing in order to get on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And a wisdom question certainly is what is what I am doing worth doing? Now, this is one question we want to ask. Is what I am engaged in, is what I am doing worth doing? And if our answer is yes, it is worth doing, then we want to shift the emphasis away from the content, the what am I getting done, and towards wisdom. And towards wisdom means, is it possible to be aware? You know, so we're shifting out of and over-focusing an over-engagement with the content of whatever it is that we're doing. And we shift into wisdom. Is it possible to be aware right now? So in other words, the emphasis is on caring for the heart instead of completing our endless lists. And this is a very, very different way to be. It's the difference between doing and knowing what you are doing. And this we can put into practice all the time. You know, this is possible for us to, to put into practice, to live our practice. You know, this difference between doing and knowing what we are doing. So in other words, 
awareness can illuminate whatever it is that we're doing. We learn how to live from the inside out instead of the outside in. Living from the inside out means to be aware on the inside of what it is that's happening. So it means to be aware of what the Buddha called the body in the body, which means the body in terms of sensations and um, uh, feeling and texture of having a body, not appearance and image and ideas about our bodies, but actually from the inside. From the outside in, living from the outside in, means to subject ourselves to expectations. The expectations of um, others and our own expectations. It's almost like we're looking at ourselves from another person's perspective. Finding ourselves influenced by the culture, whether we believe in the culture or not. When we live from the inside out, there's an ease and there's a spaciousness. And gradually, 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 we discover a sense of inner dignity. This is one of the great benefits of practice, great fruits of practice. So just to end, um, Nisargata Maharaj um, said something along the lines of, don't surrender any gained ground. You know, live what you know. You know. Don't surrender any gained ground. Don't hesitate. Live what you know. So I want to read you that poem one more time. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an ice-dover stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting. He or she is present and can welcome all things. So let's just sit for a moment or two together. beings deepen in understanding. May all beings know things as they are. May all beings live their understanding, no matter how small the understanding may be.
So, yeah, George. Um, I like the concept of your talk, and once again, you've given a talk that has happened precisely at the moment that I needed to hear the particular topic <laughs> you were on. This is the I Dharma. I've had a week of all weeks. Mm. Um, I've done so many things that I think you would approve of and the teachings would approve of, but a better way to say it. For example, I, I have a bad feeling. I, I had a, an episode in my town with my town government and I lost this thing. And, mm. you know, I, my happiness doesn't not... I, I understand from an intellectual point of view that my happiness didn't, doesn't, doesn't uh, depend upon that outcome. Yeah. Yet the goddamn outcome drove me crazy. Yeah. I woke up in the middle of the night right. with, a, with, an, with, with like an obsessive memory of the whole conversation. Why didn't you say this? Yep. And feeding it. Yep. And, you know, it had these little mental feeding frenzies in the head. Mm-hmm. And they, then you'd say positive things like, well, look, this is different than before. Now you're not blaming everybody else. You're looking inward and you're uh. saying... You're not worrying about who fixed who fixed what behind the scenes. You're saying, did you put too much emotionally into this? Are you suffering because of the emotional involvement? Uh huh. You know all uh-huh. these positive things. Right. Horrible. Day <laughs> after day, I kept. I, kept, I mean, being know, tormented like, by oh, your you mind. Have no idea. Yeah. I mean, talk about physical sim- symptoms. I'm yeah. talking about upper respiratory breathing. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, when you're in that particular state and the person next door, next, you know, you go to the store and, and someone is changing a $20 bill and you give them 50 cents and they have to give you change back and they can't make the change because you gave the 50 cents after they rung up and told them on the register how much they had to give you as change and get frustrated <laughs> with it. And you're standing there saying, can't you do that, you know. And at work, it was very, very per- 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 pervasive. And yet... In other instances, when I've had these kind of things happen, I realize, well, you're not getting angry. <laughs> so, yeah, because you're just feeling anxiety, and, and anger was the former tool to come Yeah. Anxiety, right? Right. Like, oh, big, big reach. Yeah, yeah, feeling yeah. Feeling horrible yeah. with the anxiety. Sure. <laughs> I'm almost ready to go back to the anger. <laughs> no, no. Right. You know. See, that's what you, but see, this, you know that. You know. Right. Yeah. But it's not on, but see, all this intellectual kind of part has not helping me help me. Now, <laughs> I live with a woman, I've been living with her for 40 years, that loves me a great deal, and she sees me tormenting herself. Yeah. So now you're with your significant other or a brother or a sister that you love who's suffering, you can't do anything because they can't help themselves. Mm-mm. And I'm the only one that can do it. <gasps> yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're the only one. So I yes. Was real, I was really mm-hmm. stuck. I mean, I was really yeah, yeah, old. Yeah. Like Brady, but you mentioned something. See, in the past, I've been able to look at certain situations, and by observing them, and I could understand that the frustration and the anxiety came out of a particular something. Mm-hmm. Like the love that you had for a person that wasn't being received, so you feel frustrated. So the anger or the anxiety is coming out of her. Yeah. I can't figure out what's motivating this. Mm-hmm. Because there's no rational reason to give a good goddamn about this whole thing that much. Mm-hmm. I have so mm-hmm. much positive in my life to be thankful. Right, for. right, you know, right. Yeah. But you okay. Talked about a thing mm. called a Zen call. Call. Um. Call. C O A L. Call. It's hot. Oh, Zen call. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh huh. You, you can't move off it. You can't. Yeah. And I guess that's my question to you. Is that what I got? 
<laughs> sounds like you do. <laughs> It sounds like you do. My, yeah. Yeah. But see, this is where this question of how to practice with this comes in. And of course, it can help to talk it out with somebody because in something that really gets such a grip on us, it's sometimes not easy to see how to practice with it. I mean, that's a lot of what interviews are about, is bringing in situations where well, you I, say... I don't have difficulty talking, and I talk to people that I know, and they give me certain insights. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And even the attorney I had, so I talked to them. I said, did I not listen to you well enough? Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't yeah. be ashamed to say, yeah, we tried to tell you, you wouldn't listen. That's I helpful. looking for self... But then you, begin, you know, then you get to the point where it becomes the self-doubt piece of Buddhism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's right. That was another tangent. Another yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. But to check it out is a good idea. I mean, okay. to do what you did to check it out. But I also mean, you know, I mean, talking in the way that we are right now okay. is so helpful. Right. Because sometimes somebody else who knows the territory, right. you know, because what you're experiencing, everybody has experienced in some way or another. And it does affect well, the upper respiratory. Never. About anything? Well, when we had family problems. Ah, but, see? But she solves her problem. Mine is a thing that the same reaction I'm having now is the spaghetti western that happened, you know, a while back. Uh, you see? I mean, this, tell this me that one again. The what? spaghetti, how did... Well, spaghetti western is a western where it's essentially the same theme, just has a little few different characters. <gasps> I see. So you mean, like, around family, like, this is the same thing as you experienced when you were experiencing all the family yeah, difficulties. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, one thing that um, seems clear is that you are trying to think your way out of this. In other words, yes. you're saying, I shouldn't be feeling this way because it's not so important. And the right. family stuff was important because that's really meaningful to you. Yeah, yeah. Right, but there still is this basic, I shouldn't be feeling the way I am. Oh, yeah. mm. oh. And feelings do not cooperate with the way we want ourselves to be. Feelings are feelings. And that doesn't mean that we need to act out of them, but it does mean, definitely it means, that we have to allow the feeling to be. And if there's a resistance, a basic resistance, this thought, I shouldn't be feeling the way I am, when you are feeling that way, then it actually strengthens the feeling. It actually, that resistance actually makes the emotion last longer than it does if we can um, make room for it and allow it. Not think about it, but allow it. You know, lay the story aside and experience it. Experience it in your body. Experience it. <laughs> we, we, you know, you have to keep doing it. It's not like it, you do it and it's over and you tried it and it didn't work. You have to do it over and over and over again. And what comes out of this is one learns a greater degree of patience because you have to. You know, you're impatient with yourself. You want this to be different. You well, want I'm it to change. Sunday. I mean, it got to the point where it was really, you know, I, I, was, I mean, it was an anxiety. Right. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I was saying, you know, I, like it was when you meditate, like you thought, and suddenly you're thinking about the bird on a tree, and all of a sudden you bring yourself back to your meditation. Yep, you know, yep, as I was yep. Experiencing it, I, I brought myself back, and I went out, I, I, I said, let it go. I just mm -hmm. simply said, let it go. So mm -hmm. I stopped feeding it for a moment and went on. Uh -huh. The Zen Cole thing, do I read about that somewhere? 
Uh, I actually can't give you a reference. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> okay, but let me describe the coal. The coal is hot. It's, it's in your throat. You can't spit it up. In other words, you can't get rid of it. And you can't swallow it down. So you're in a pickle, right? And, and it really hurts. So that's where being with it, giving it um, attention, not over-focusing on it, you know, not like, like zeroing in on it, but allowing it to be in a greater context of what everything else that's happening. You know, at the same time that you're aware of this call, you might also be aware of the traffic. You might also be aware of a bird chirping. You might also be aware of the rest of your body, um, you know, that, that which is not experiencing pain. You might also be aware of the space, you know, of the sky. You know, in other words, you're bringing in more of life instead of over-focusing. But you still are not trying to push this one thing away. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You allow, and that's that's a way so of, you just of allowing have to really it. Basically, write it out as best you can. Um, well, I'm not sure how you're saying that um, because you can write it out with you know resignation and the law of impermanence reigns supreme, so it's going to be over at some point, and all of this. And that's actually not using the situation as material for awakening. That's, you know, that's kind of using the teachings as a way to avoid. But it's fine because everybody can identify with this. I mean, maybe, maybe the chest pains, I don't know. But in terms of, you know, in, in terms of the severity of it. The other thing I got is a crazy idea when talking to someone, and it made a lot of sense to me, was that, that somehow when I was experiencing this intense emotional reaction to everything, that something biological was happening. Uh -huh. That I was triggering something within myself somehow or other. Uh -huh. That was uh -huh. kind of, you know, like, what is the word? Pheromone? You know what pheromone Oh, is? yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. Kind of a chemical thing. Right. 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 I have to tell you, it, it, really, it really was, it, it brought me back to like almost to the time I was when I first started coming here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I had, I had yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the kind of experience that can really shake one and um, undermine one's confidence and, and this and that. And it's okay. I mean, you know, it changes. It's, it's, it's ebbed a bit now because you're here, you're able to talk about it, you know. Um, but can you, um, can you still take up this situation? Can you see how to practice with it? Because then it doesn't, I mean, this is the kind of situation that is, it, that, I'm not sure I know how to practice with it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, let me let me give you just two ways. One. Well, I actually have three ways. One, maybe two. One, is, <laughs> is what I said about opening and yeah. being aware of more elements in life, um, and letting that feeling be there, but not take you over. Okay. Right. That's one way. Right. Another way is to bring in your meta practice. You have a meta practice. I stopped it. Ah, when did you stop it? Well, I haven't been doing it. I've had a lot of resistance to practice lately. Got it. Yeah. And I, I have this idiotic way of living. I mean, it's so exhausting. I say this every week. I'm so tired. <laughs> you know, I, I, I practice at night when I'm tired. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, 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 right. I'm right. able to change it around. Yeah. Yeah, now yeah. Uh huh. Right, right, right. Yeah. I fall 
fall asleep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I you know. Tired. Right. Exactly. Because you do need your sleep. So I, will, I will do the metta. Okay. And also when you wake up in the middle of the night and this is tormenting you, do the metta. How do I go back to sleep? Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, um, when you're lying in bed and you can't go to sleep at, you know, at the beginning of the night. I, I do that. Do the, the metta. Great. 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 Because that will help. Because um, my first approach of opening up and being with what's happening um, that's a little bit more of an investigative approach, but you really need some calm when one is so upset and so in the grip of something. Calm is really necessary. And calm comes about through being with one object. So that could be the metta, that could be the breath, that could be your feet touching the floor. Right. You know, um, doesn't matter what it is, but. Well, you can see I pay attention to the body because I was able to tell you. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's fantastic. Right. There are things that right. Can work well. Today I went to visit a place of business and there were three kids that came. One is a pre uh, a kindergarten girl. Yeah. Three girls. Uh-huh. They came running up uh, to me uh, like I was the Buddha himself. Ah. Uh, yes. Georgie Porgy, that's my name. Uh-huh. And I tell you, and also that's and just so yeah stuff. right but also you know also just having three little ones oh, yeah. adore you like that oh, is yeah. it's very it, it brings about when you talk about the chemicals in the brain i mean it brings about something that's very light and very affectionate and very wholesome and then one remembers that again you know ah yeah, and that's a very good thing, too. Well, thank you, yeah, 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 yeah. Hi, Marianne. I'm really Hi. happy to be here on Area to Speak today. And I second George in the sense that I feel like you said a lot of things that I really needed to hear exactly. Great. You started with The Matrix, and I have to say, um, I never saw the film, but I do know there's a red pill and a blue pill. <laughs> and the guy takes whatever the pill that leads him on a huge psychic um, mind game in an altered state of reality or something like that? Is that kind of what happened? I think, as I understood it, that one pill brings reality and the other one, uh, he's lost in a conditioned, happy, happy frame, but it's conditioned. Okay. And the other is painful, but it is on the way to the unconditioned as far. Well, I'm now I'm now I'm really messing with this. Um, <laughs> now I am trying. Now I am trying to make a dharmic. Um, but but the one pill um, is reality. The one pill breaks him out of this dream, mm-hmm. this conditioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he's in reality, and the reality is kind of devastating because mm-hmm. the dream was really pleasant. Okay. Okay. I, that's my best. Is that pretty good? Yeah. Anyone who saw it? Yeah. Great. Well, <laughs> Take the whatever red pill. pill <laughs> whatever pill is a dream that leads away from reality, I took. Ah. Uh, okay. Uh, and um. Uh huh. What you said was uh, that the gap between what we know and how we live is uh, the painful phase of the meditation process. Yes. And practice. Yes. Waking up to that. Yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, the the reason that that something as extreme as the Matrix speaks to me is because, um, and I, I, I have mentioned this, and I, I feel like I have to 
affirm the freedom to speak here because if I don't, mm. what is the Buddha worth? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to just say it. Okay. Um, I, uh, my subconscious mind right now is, uh, is, is, it has been, has been taken over by whatever you want to call them, inorganic beings or psychic entities. The weird thing is that it happened because of an intensive yoga practice that healed my psyche originally, hmm. and then uh, an emergence of uh, something probably through a kundalini energy and an attachment to a deity hmm. that actually really wrecked the lucidity of my psyche. And I'm not getting psychic sleep. I'm literally not getting psychic sleep. You mean you're, 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 you are actually sleeping, but you're having... You're having, having you're being tortured. That are manufactured by something else. Okay. That's not, not my brain. Okay. So you you are. I mean, your body is asleep. My body is asleep. Yeah. Okay. But I'm not getting restorative sleep. Right. Exactly. Okay. Okay. And so you wake up and you're really tired. I wake up. My temples ache. Mm. I feel disoriented. Mm. I feel violated. Mm. Mm. I know that the dream is. Um, mm. These. Well, it's complicated, but let me try and just say that um, if I know that's true and I know that I'm being hurt and then, and I know that the practice of meditation is one way mm. that I could heal mm, mm. part of my mind. Mm. that's being damaged mm -hmm, mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. is that what I do mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, that's just mm -hmm. one level okay. but the, the thing yeah. is that that's the most catastrophic thing that's happening to me and maybe that's not the best thing to bring up but it seems foolish not to oh yeah I don't um, have any so problem I, with you bringing it up I, I, just, um, yeah, I yeah. just wonder what you would say about um, given that you don't know exactly how this happened and right no psychiatrist psychologist psychic healer i mean almost no one because you have gone to psychic healers and oh, psychiatrists yes, and psychologists people. ah you have and uh, even neurologists that i've been to and uh, good is being damaged yeah won't accept they don't understand that your dreaming mind can actually be Mm -hmm. Have they have they offered to give an MRI or anything I've like that? Demanding, been, uh -huh. yeah. Well, I'm not saying demanding, but I've been fighting for. You'd MRI. like it, yeah. You would prefer an MRI. I would prefer an MRI yeah. right yeah. now. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, no. yeah. So you're still kind of working on that, trying to get the MRI. I'm working on that yeah. level. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm having Reiki treatments every week. Uh -huh. Helping me a lot. Good. Good. Um. Mm. But is it off the body, or the Reiki is on the body? I mean, is it touching? Is on the body. Okay. Okay. Is on the body. Okay. But I guess one of the ironic things is that I, and I just told this, you know, this is like you said the other the other things, and I've talked to Michael about this. Okay. Michael actually told me not to sit. Okay. I didn't sit for two weeks, but I'm back mm, mm. because I I actually feel like I need to sit. Mm, mm, and the mm. reason he told me not to sit is because he said this is something afflicting your mind. Mm -hmm. And there's something, there's a mental process that still goes on in meditation. Mm -hmm. He said, I'd go with your body. Mm -hmm. and try and shift the whole thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Which is good advice. Right. And I'm, right. I am it doing is. that in some ways. Okay. Um, 
Mm-hmm. But I think that is really good advice. The, the narrative mm. of this that is strange and which is unusual and which you may or may not believe is that I was very attached to a Hindu deity who is um, a very powerful and popular Hindu deity who I loved. And I attached a personal story of what happened to me to the karma of this deity. Mm. And I bowed and I chanted and I prayed and I practiced yoga intensively to recover as an artist um, before this deity. And some energy was thrown back at me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This has to do with Hinduism Mm -hmm. and I, I don't understand all the connections between Buddhism and Hinduism. I'm not a scholar, but there are some, I suppose. Anyway, what frightens me a little bit is that, well, the truth is that the deity was Ganesh, and Ganesh was the, if some of you all know maybe, that he's the elephant-headed deity in, in Hinduism. He was, um, in, according to legend, beheaded by his father Shiva um, while he was protecting his mother. Um, and he was given an elephant head to survive. And he became, in Hinduism, the overcomer of obstacles, the gateway god, mm. the first mm. god in Hinduism. Mm. And I believed in this story, and I also believed that because my head had been metaphorically taken off by someone in the music world who I loved, that Ganesha would protect me and give me a new head. And when I told this story to someone, he said, you know, that is one of the craziest things I have ever heard hmm. someone in this society say they, they would believe in. Mm. But I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some energy came back at mm. me. Mm. And I didn't let go of it, and I didn't understand that even though yoga is wholesome, mm. and that I was innocent in what I believed in, mm. that something negative could happen because of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as an artist... It's really hard for me to let go of the story because Uh, I can write about it and think about it in all these different uh, ways. Yeah. But what Mm. you're saying is Mm. if this is actually damaging me and it's negative, Mm. what I know is that. Mm. But if I'm still hooked on receiving messages sometimes, then I'm not actually... Um, that's good. Exactly. That's good. Exactly. That's good. That's good. Yes. If you're that, that's great. If you want anything out of this, if you want any kind of understanding to take place through this vehicle, mm-hmm. it's going to be a problem. Yeah. I mean, that's that's very very good. Well, you're still hooked. You know, the, the wanting is going to be a problem. The, the, you know, I would say, use the word gently, attachment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is going to be a problem because some of you doesn't want it and some of you does. So you're divided, you know, and I think you have to um, come into a, um, a one-pointedness and an undivided um, knowing, an undivided sense of what you really do want because if you in any way still want it, it's going to still keep happening. No, I want to go through painful withdrawal and I want to get healthy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's what I want. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, mm. I just, mm. the reason that it's always been hard for me to totally give up these psychic spirits that came to me is because they're magical in one way. And I 
love the idea right. that magic exists. In the right, world. right. But it, but it, you know, maybe let's call it mystery. Mystery definitely does exist in this world. Um, magical puts it into a particular form, and um, I think in holding on to this one particular form, you're not allowing yourself to experience mystery, which does not have form. You mean I don't have to understand everything that happened? No, no. I, I don't. I don't. I don't believe so. I don't believe so. I, I don't want comments okay, about this. Okay. No, no, that's okay. I just don't want any, because this is a, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I actually don't think it's appropriate, because I don't want it to be a group discussion about a, such a big um, difficulty in one's life. Um, yeah, so, so, um, yes, to, um, I, I kind of lost my track. Um, Yes, if you're if you're holding to a particular form of what you're viewing as magic, so that you can have that experience or understanding that magic does exist, I think you're you're narrowing too much because um, mystery does exist and it is without form. And so, if you want it in this one particular way, I think I think is a disservice to you, to yourself. And you know? do you feel that the Buddha? Um Do you feel that the practice of meditation is separate from a belief in the Buddha? Or do you feel that they're, that this is a Buddhist practice and you can't separate the two anyway? Um, this is a Buddhist practice. And um, um, the Buddha, um, you know, as a person born over 2,500 years ago, is the one who um, um, understood freedom and was willing to offer it and teach it. And then these are the consequences of sitting here now 2,500 years later. Um, and there have been many Buddhas. There's not just our Buddha. You know, this is our Buddha, Gautama Buddha is our Buddha. But there have been many Buddhas. And um, the greater understanding of the Buddha is that everybody is a Buddha. You know, everyone has the same nature that the Buddha had. And so everyone can know their own original nature. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anything? Yes. Um, you mentioned um, the importance of looking for the gaps, and that if you're not seeing the gaps, that you're um, not doing as well as you could be. You, um, <laughs> That's interesting. You heard that part of the talk. <laughs> okay. Yeah, a seeking or a. Well, do you do you mean that? I you know if you were to like print my thoughts on paper throughout the day, conscious and unconscious, subconscious thoughts, the thought not enough, not good enough, not doing enough, come up many many times. Okay. Looking for that gap, constantly looking for that gap. Um, so kind of a. It could turn into right. You know, some self criticism. Exactly, or some obsessing. Right, 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 right. Right. Right, which is really not where you want to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, how about um, a way of easing that gap is to is to kind of move to one side of it rather than noticing the gap. You know, so one side of it is that um, 
this is how I am, right? This is how things are right now. And if you can know that, you don't need to worry about a gap. You know, that kind of dispenses with the, with the whole issue, with the problem of gap or no gap or big gap or small gap. It, it kind of moves you out of gap mind. Um, if you can move to one side of this. And like we kind of always want to move to how we want things to be, you know? And that you pretty much want to let go of for the sake of, because you have a practice. I mean, you have enough understanding at this point where, because um, some, sometimes, um, you know, um, knowing where we want to go or having aspirations or, you know, this is how I could be, some of that can be really positive because we have a, a bit of a, a, a greater sense of things instead of being mired in suffering. But when you have some understanding, um, you can be aware of how you are and how things are without being mired in suffering. Is that, does any of that make sense? Yeah. Uh-huh. So to be aware of this is how things are right now. You know? I mean, you don't have to make it into an I, into a self, because generally that is really a drag. But to just know, ah, this is how things are right now. You know, this would be fantastic because then you don't have to, you don't have to be concerned, and that gap will narrow on its own. That's the thing, is that it's not that nothing is happening; everything is happening by being aware of how things are right now. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. Good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash. Donate.